as we look at the text this morning of Luke 9, I said last week that we were going to look at it last week and then perhaps this week yet again. And now I have one more tease to put out there. We might just be in this section one more time. I think that will be the final time, but we'll see next week if we're still in verses 1 through 6. This text is so significant from different angles. I'm having a hard time choosing the right angle and sticking with it and moving forward. There might be yet another angle to this text that we together as a church need to consider. But this morning as we consider um, 1 through 6 again... Last week, you recall, even if you weren't able to be with us simply by way of introduction, you'll see it as we walk through the text again. But we considered last week from this passage how Jesus is both the source and the content of effective gospel ministry. That is, he is is the source, the beginning place, the foundation of effective ministry, and he is its content. When in ministry, he is the substance of our conversation. He is the substance of of our time and our effort. In light of that, in, in, so, so kind of stay with me mentally, in light of him being the source and content of effective gospel ministry, I want us to consider another important and related item to that. So it, it isn't kind of a, a break from Jesus being the source and content of ministry, discipleship opportunity, ladies' Bible studies, men's discipleship, our time in Calvin Club, each one of you in your web of relationships that you have. He is in those moments the source of your ministry, the strength. He is the content of what you hope to share and encourage and see one another grow in and be nourished by. And in light of that, there is a related item to that I want to consider this morning, and that is simply this. What must the program of the church involve? Or or to say it another way, what is the mission of the church? This is a really important task for us this morning to think on. And not just this morning, but for each of us to think on. Not simply as pastors, but as congregants, church attenders, thinking and reading and seeing on the web and different discussions and sharing of relationships within this body and outside of it, thinking, what is the purpose of the church? What is its mission? Now, I want to make one big caveat at the very beginning. Whatever I do say this morning from this passage, hopefully you see, is deeply tethered to the text. There is much more to be said. There is more specifically that we could outline, or there's more that needs to be said underneath the umbrella of what I'm discussing this morning that is program execution. That is, so I'm talking at this level, what is the mission of the church as we see it in this text? Then, Kind of the nitty-gritty takes place of, okay, but what does that then look like? What does that brick and mortar do? What are the ministries we're actually going to conduct? What are the programs we ought to have to execute said purposes? And certainly that task is way beyond what we can do this morning. But those are important conversations. But they can't be conversations that we simply shoot from the hip on. This is what the church should be doing. This is the program we ought to be having. This is how we ought to be organized. First, we have to see, what do we know for sure is the mission of the church. What does the word of God say regarding the mission of the church? Then, with that mission in mind, how then do we execute it? 
So for me this morning, I want to press just a little bit on, again, from this text, what is the mission of the church or what does that mission have to involve? What are its components? Again, a little bit more. Michael Horton writes, and this is what's pressing the text just a bit, quote, engaging the culture without losing the gospel is the greatest challenge of the hour. So, so, so we can't live as though culture exists there and we're here. So, so we live there, we work there, we have friendships there, we watch TV there, we discuss there, we vote there. So we're a part of it. So, but, but, so the issue isn't just deny it, pretend it doesn't exist, live in a weird way. No, engaging the culture, that is in that web of relationships, in those places that you live life, engaging there as a believer without losing the gospel is the greatest challenge of the hour. So in answering, uh, kind of addressing that issue of, of, of the church and, and gospel mission, again, I want us to address the question, what must the program of the church involve or what is the mission of the church? So let's look at the text just briefly, um, as has been read for you, in answering what is the program or mission of the church. That is in verse 1 and 2. Look just briefly there with me, if you would. Verse 1 of chapter 9, and he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. If you jump down in verse 6, as we noticed once again last week, only just from a different angle, you'll notice in verse 6, and they departed, so he called and he sent, and he, and he, he empowered them and he sent them out, and they went out. And they went with that power and with that message and did what? They preached the gospel and they healed everywhere they went. So again, if we were to look at this text afresh from a different angle, asking what is the program of the church, you'll note specifically two items, right? You'll, you'll note it. So, so yesterday in men's prayer, we were together, some of us men together here praying in the morning. And I asked, hey, guys, if you have time, read verses 1 through 6 and just ask one question. What is the mission of the church from this text? And as I'm pressing this morning, there's two items that stand out to us, even in a brief cursory reading. Two things, right? Proclaim the kingdom and to heal. This is the mission of the church. Now, again, we looked last week at how this, is, this text here has many pieces that are particularized to this time and place. Healing is one of them. We'll get to that next. Healing is one of those items where a man puts his hand on another man and, like, God's power and, and literally this person walks or something. It's not that stuff we're watching on TV is not what this text is addressing. But it's still a category in the mission of the church that we need to carefully look at. But if we could address the first one, so I want to look at two items from the text, preaching and healing, or proclaiming and healing. And first, let's consider the mission of the church in light of preaching. It is important to note, when we think of the mission of the church in light of what our Lord gives to the apostles here, proclaim the kingdom of God. And they went about preaching the gospel. It is important to note that the one thing that makes Christian mission distinctly Christian is making disciples of Christ. That is so significant. When we begin to talk about what should the church be doing, what are the programs it should be executing, what is its philosophy, what is its purposes, why does it gather, why does it exist, 
the one thing that makes Christian mission distinctly Christian is making disciples of Christ. And that is here described in this text as preaching. Now, this is an important piece, a very firm foundational building block for our consideration of what is the mission of the church. And it's so pressing because the changing nature of Christian ministry and missions in the last few decades. Let me just kind of give you a little brief overview, a little, a little, a little taste of the shift in missions in the last few decades. One missiologist, that is a person who, who is a professor over missions, at a seminary. One missiologist writes, quote, the work of current missionaries reflects a paradigm shift from spreading Christianity to living it. Just track with me very carefully. In a postmodern context, it goes against the grain to go and do hardcore proselytizing. To millennials, it really feels like an Al-Qaeda in Christian wineskins, end quote. Note the significant change in current missions. From spreading Christianity or proselytizing, or what we might say in Christian language, in the language of the text, disciple-making. A shift from spreading to living Christianity. Just put that in your mind for a moment. Another missions professor, Scott Moreau, this one from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the greater Chicago area. He says, quote, Two decades ago, half of my graduate students believed building churches abroad was their top priority. Today, it might be 10%. The majority identify fighting human trafficking, orphanage work, HIV, and poverty as more important, end quote. In fact, one person speaks this way, quote, the world needs more job training, health care, and education, not more sermons. Finally, a 2006 study by Calvin College found little to no difference in the spiritual response between two groups of Hondurans, one which had its homes rebuilt by missionaries who did not proselytize them, and the other by a local humanitarian agency. The study then concludes, quote, Unless foreigners explain that they are motivated to help by their religious beliefs, locals may be grateful for the new home, but they should not be expected to connect dots that they may not even know exist. End quote. This marks the seismic shift in the mission of the church. As I read for you two decades ago, this theological professor, 80% felt that planting churches 
was their number one priority. Today, that number stands, at least in his experience, at 10%. But if we come back and we ask the question, what is the church's mission? From the biblical text, what do we see? Verse 2, and he sent them. So our Lord calls. He gives power. He, sh- he, he provides authority. He sends them out. Or as we see in Matthew 28 later, what in the great commissioning of the church, out to do what? What is the primary focus of the church? To proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, again, those around you will not connect the dots that they don't know exist. It is simply not enough. It's not enough for someone to hopefully see Jesus in you. Consider ourselves as a portrait of our Lord. Oh boy, not too many folk will be saved. It's not enough that they see him in me or in my deeds, or in my disposition. They must hear of him. My life, Adam's life, your life, the church, individual disciples, our lives cannot express the truths of death and resurrection. This stems a lot of that, if, if it's true, as, as it was, uh, it's attributed to Francis Assisi, I don't know, a, a godly mystic. Um, where, where he had said, and, and it's uh, sometimes often quoted at, at missions contexts and encouraging folks. Um, again, he said, to preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Which is stirring and moving and encouraging, but inadequate. We can't preach without words. We cannot express the truths that lost men and women are under the wrath of God. And that dying in time only separates the body and the soul, whereupon the soul endures forever and will experience the wrath of God apart from a mediator who is Jesus Christ alone. This we cannot show in building houses. The central tenets of justification are to be expressed through the preaching of the good news of Jesus. So this brings us right where hopefully I can proceed a bit to the expressed truth that we as a church here at Redeemer and we as a church as in church Catholic together must maintain the centrality of preaching in the life of Christian disciple making. That is critical. Westminster Shorter Catechism on the effectual nature of preaching states, quote, the Spirit, and just meditate on this for a moment. The Spirit makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God an effectual means of convincing and converting Sinners, end quote. 
and maybe uh, where, 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 how much we share confessional lines or confessional commitments on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some might press further. Okay, great. That's what the confession or the catechism does say. Is there a biblical warrant beyond this text for the supremacy of preaching in the local church? Where's the biblical warrant for it beyond the catechism? Well, let me push the text just a bit. Consider a few brief examples of the supremacy of preaching. That it isn't true. That indeed, job training is necessary. Healthcare, we all know the needs there. And education, absolutely without a doubt. But it cannot be that we need them more and not so many sermons. There has to be a different method Consider a few biblical examples. Psalm 19.7 says this. You, you've probably memorized this at a point in time, perhaps know it already, but let me refresh you. Psalm 19.7, over the effectual work of God through his word, not our lives, through his word. Quote, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. That, that replaces you and I, Right? It's, it's, it certainly isn't that believer was perfect, converting the soul of another. But, but, it, but it is indeed God's word, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, he says, The foolishness of preaching saves them that believes. It's the foolishness or the folly of preaching that saves those that believe. Again, not someone's life, not someone's example. Not that lives and example and testimony are totally immaterial. There is a connection point between what you say and how you live. There just is, and you cannot erase it. You cannot say, well, just listen to my creed and don't worry about my deed. You can't make that clean of a break. It just doesn't work that way. But there cannot be the exchange of one for the other either. For the preaching of the Word of God saves them that believe. Also, in Romans 10, 17, Paul says, quote, Faith comes by hearing. So think about the way that one comes to receive the gift of faith. How, how does faith come to the heart of the hearer this morning? How is faith generated in the soul? Where their eyes open, their ears open, they see beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they fly to Him for refuge. Where where does that, that birth of faith come from? Paul says, faith comes by hearing. And hearing of what? Hearing by the Word of God. That, that's, that's the instrumental means of how faith is birthed in the soul. This gets back to mission. This gets back to purpose. This gets back to philosophy. What is the mission of the church? To preach. Finally, Paul tells Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, as he's giving him his directives, right? Paul reigned to him, and, and Timothy dear to him as a son in the faith. He gives these instructions to Timothy, where he will be planted there in Ephesus to conduct ministry. He says, quote, preach the word 
be ready all the time, or as he says, in season and out of season. Be ready. Preach. Show yourself an approved minister of the gospel, the gift that's been entrusted to you, the pulpit ministry you have in Ephesus. Preach there. That faith might be birthed in the heart of the hearer. Preach, Timothy. So again, if we were to ask the question, as I hope you are with me this morning, why do I go to church? Or what is the mission of the church? What should our local church be doing? Or what should all churches be doing? What is the point? What do people receive from church they can't receive from their local community civic group? Preaching. So preaching the good news of Christ's death for sin and his subsequent resurrection is the first importance in the program of the church. For better or for worse, it must be done. This is our endeavor to preach and to proclaim Christ's death and subsequent resurrection. But again, some criticism might be that you just are in it for conversions, right? You just want to see people converted in a moment. You want to add certain conversion totals. Maybe you're marking them. Maybe you're tracking them. Maybe you're bragging about them. Maybe you're somehow manipulating people into them so that you can be about the mission of the church. Certainly, that is a fair criticism. I don't think any of us should push back immediately like, that's not true. That never happens. It happens a lot. Perhaps we have attended churches, ministries, been a part of situations where really it is kind of a manipulative tactic in order to create a conversion moment. So certainly as we push back against just being in it for the conversions, again, it's about disciple-making. Not simply a moment of change in a person's life, but their whole life growing in the Lord, being faithfully cared for, welcomed into your community, nourished along the pathway and journey of Christ, joining with his people in fellowship, receiving of his table, joining in Bible studies and prayer meetings. It's not simply a moment of, hey, I got that person to say yes. It's rather a long-term view of disciple-making, and that's what preaching is about. That folks would hear, would flee to Christ, would rest upon him and receive all of him, thereby be justified, continually transformed and growing in maturity of Christ. The mission of the church through preaching is about disciple-making. But let's consider the second item just for a moment. Lest we take an approach, kind of, which is a large criticism of the church, particularly by millennials. That it's a simply a Gnostic endeavor. The church is only concerned with the spiritual. They almost deny physical realities. The church has an attitude like this. Give them the gospel for their soul and ignore the needs of their body. It doesn't really matter. It's all about the gospel. This is a massive critique, and this is why a shift in missions is taking place. And when I say missions, I I know I quoted some that were speaking of foreign endeavors, but I'm speaking even of the local mission of the church. Many who jettison the pulpit, jettison our time around preaching in an effort to do more deeds and less creeds. 
So again, this, this critique of the church. And we cannot do that. Clearly in this text, as you look there very carefully, it simply says proclaim the kingdom and heal. They did both. They preached the gospel and they healed everywhere they went. Again, if we were to take that approach and say it is only the soul, not the body that matters, we would be shot down by James himself. I briefly read for you. James 2, 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. So clearly you see this individual and they're in difficulty. And one of you says to them, Oh, go in peace. Be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So see, it it can't be either or. Either we preach or we care. It must be if we're to be faithful to the mission of the church every Lord's Day and every day in between. We will be marked by a people who proclaim and preach, but also address the needs of the body. Again, what we are considering from this text is what does the text teach us about the ongoing program or mission of the church, and we're asking it now under the category of healing. Again, for us here at Redeemer, we do not believe that physical healing, that is not that it cannot take place, but that a single man is empowered with apostolic spiritual power to be able to say, I'm a source of healing. Bring someone to me and let me execute that healing. Or have someone come, close their eyes and forehead, hit them and they fall into a healing situation. We're, we're saying that apostolic gift in the early church went out as well with the apostles themselves. So we're seeing that as a gift that died off at the close of the canon and is not currently gifted me or other ministers of the gospel, Pastor Dan or others, outside our own sphere also. We, just, we would say that does not exist. That just is not occurring. Now, could something happen where somebody touches someone and then they say, hey, that guy touched me, brushed shoulders, I'm telling you, he healed me. I, your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't know, could, could that happen? Does it happen? Perhaps. I mean, are folks miraculously healed? Absolutely. Do things that are phenomenological occur? Sure. Do we even pray that that would occur, that somehow th- what is present in you will not be in you? Yes. But am I a standing source of that or other ministers of the gospel sources of that? And we're saying no. But that doesn't mean because this text is particularized in time and place with that gift of healing doesn't mean the category and mission of the church no longer exists. The ongoing category of the church is one of physical living. Does the church still have a burden to care for the physical ailments and injuries and hurt and weaknesses of others? That's kind of what we're saying. What transcends that specific gift of healing? Is there something still here? And I'm pressing yes. Addressing the needs of people's physical lives is still a mission of the church. So in other words, 
The church, from this text, and as we see it built through the book of Acts, must be concerned with meeting the physical needs of those they seek to minister to. Let me give you just one little refresher. So far, we're in the ninth chapter of Luke. And so far, as we look at our Lord's example, we see indeed he cares not only for the spiritual well-being of an individual, but you know time and time again he meets their physical needs with compassion. Consider so far, just by way of rehearsal, we've seen at least two men that were demon-possessed, which is the absolute opposite of flourishing. We have seen these two men healed, set free by our Lord. We saw a woman with a fever find relief by the ministry of our Lord. We saw him address the young 12-year-old girl who was dying. And he brought her back to life. We saw a leprous man be healed. So far we have seen a woman of hemorrhage who spent all her life savings on finding that healing hand. And it was our Lord who healed her, this woman of hemorrhage. And finally, we have seen also, along with the multitude statements where it said, and he went about healing all who were there. So more and more and more examples. But we saw a man with a withered hand also be healed of our Lord. Now, what does that show us in light of our Lord's ministry and the commission here to the apostles in the ongoing ministry of the church? That when the preaching of the presence of the kingdom is provided, we also should display a spirit of compassion in meeting the needs of the whole person. This is significant for us because as the church, we must be concerned with the whole person or we do fall under the criticism that you're just in it for conversions. And in it for conversions, we are. But it isn't We just want to minister to you spiritually, and we couldn't care any less for your infirmities. People are integrated, and so must the church be in its ministry. We must be concerned with the whole person. Emotional stability. Do we care for the emotional stability of those we seek to minister to? Do we care truly for their spiritual stability? where they're at in their growth of Christ, where they're at, do they know Christ? Are we concerned with their mental stability? How can we provide care? How can we provide help? And do we care about them simply even physically? They're in dire straits or in difficult situation. They're in a real rock and a hard place situation. Well, it doesn't matter to us. It's creed, not deed. No. Word and deed, as you see here in this text, word and deed are not to be held in competition to one another. They're not competing and warring against one another. Which church is faithful? Well, the one who does all the deeds. No, it's the one who has all the words. Wait a minute. Isn't there a way in which creed and deed flourish together? Our argument from this passage and others would be yes. So how do we understand the church's mission in light of this word of preaching and this word of physical life or addressing the healing needs of an individual? How should we view the church's place in our lives and in the life of our community, in the web of our relationships? Well, word and deed are to be understood as mutually nourishing and reinforcing one another as obedient expressions of faithful ministry. 
Now, again, I say something like that, and it's like, yeah, that seems to be what's being said here. Now, what does it look like to address someone's mental needs? Again, a very complex, difficult situation. What does it look like? Then tell me, what does it look like to meet a person's physical needs? What is it that we could actually execute? How are we going about that? What is the mission of the church? How much money is being allocated to that? So there's, again, a lot of challenging discussion that proceeds forth. But if I could offer you an encouragement at all, from this text, we all see it is a discussion that must continue to be had. And I'm not calling as our pundits do or our politicians do to say, well, I enjoy the conversation. We all know that's meaningless. We're talking about actually looking at how do you as a family spend your time? How do you spend your finances? How do you use the gifts and the calling that God has placed upon you in the web of sphere of relationship or the web of relationships that you have? Are these categories of physical life that you at all feel is your problem? We could start right there as a church, just thinking as our own family units, as a Christian family. So I offered you finally three broad statements in conclusion, just three broad statements. Again, I, I, I don't mean to be overly simplistic on this. But I want to conclude with three broad statements from this passage that I think could be helpful um, from this passage that we need to truly consider um, as, as individual Christians in our sphere of influence, and then also as we as a ministry together think of what has the Lord called us to do and be as His people in our context. Number one, Christians cannot be indifferent toward the suffering around them and around the world. I know I, that's simple, but it's important as you prayerfully consider your own walk with the Lord. Christians cannot be indifferent toward the suffering around them and around the world. I'm not saying run out, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying run out and catch the first plane and go to Syria and stand in Aleppo and meet everyone's need and save the world that's not your calling, it's not your task to save the world and bear the burden of saving the world. That's not your calling. But is it therefore equal, this is not your problem completely. In your sphere of influence and web of relationships, is there a calling to genuinely meet the needs of someone that you know? The next, uh, number two, the second of three broad conclusions, and I know they're broad. Number two, Christians who risk and sacrifice for the poor or the disadvantaged, and again, some more than others, based on several other factors, constitution, life settings, the Lord's calling, many different pieces. But let me just say, Christians who risk and sacrifice for the poor or the disadvantage, should not think that their work is praiseworthy only if it results in conversions. Again, it's not that conversions don't matter. I hope I've pressed that in point one. This, the world needs more sermons. 
It's about disciple-making. And the only thing that makes it Christian distinctly is that it proclaims Christ. Otherwise, we're all working for nonprofits that aren't Christian. However, we mustn't think that our work is only praiseworthy if it results in conversions. There is still necessary common grace ministry that needs to be a part of the Christian community. Number three, Christians must recognize that what makes the church's program distinctly Christian is that it expressly points to the person of Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. It is Christian to the Hondurans when we're building their house as we proclaim expressly Christ who is Lord. Call upon a listener to receive of him as he is freely offered unto them in his gospel. We cannot go on mission with many deeds and many hands, when at the end of the exit interviews, no one knew the difference between us and a standard 501 ministry that isn't Christian. It is distinctly to be Christian, and it is distinctly Christian when it proclaims Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. This is the mission of the church, to proclaim his gospel and to address the whole person we seek to minister to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time around your word this morning. I pray that you will give us much heart, thoughtfulness surrounding the issue of how we can be your people in our culture without surrendering the gospel, but maintaining it distinctly as Christian. We're your people. We proclaim your glory, not our own. Your glory is our end, not ourselves. So Lord, help us be faithful. Give us wisdom to understand how to maneuver as a family unit, as, as a couple, as a church collective, wherever we are in the web of relationships and responses you've given to us in your kind providence. Lord, give us patience with one another. Give us wisdom that we might go forward in power. Thank you for this Lord's day and your wonderful word that is given for our benefit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.